0: Welcome to the Rapid Response Podcast brought to you by Society of Healthcare Epidemiology of America. Shay promoting the prevention of healthcare-associated infections and antibiotic resistance, and seeking to advance the field of healthcare epidemiology and antibiotic stewardship. I'm Ali Javed. I'm a professor of medicine at Icon School of Medicine and hospital epidemiologist at Mount Sinai Downtown, and I'll serve as your podcast moderator today. The discussion on the podcast does not reflect Shay's perspective, but facilitates communication of multiple perspectives and experiences as we go through this challenging time together. She is excited to launch this episode of podcast, COVID-19 Update, What We Know Now. Today's discussion will focus on a very important topic, mandatory vaccine policies, challenges, and solutions. Our speakers today are Dr. Rekha Murthy, Professor of Medicine, division of Infectious Diseases at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center and Professor of Clinical Medicine at UCLA David Gaffin School of Medicine, and Josh Shafzin, Director of Infection Prevention and Control at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center and Associate Professor at the University of Cincinnati Department of Pediatrics. Thank you both for joining us today. Let us move right into the discussion. One of the questions we have is implementing mandatory vaccine policies is certainly a hot topic among healthcare professionals. Can you both describe your involvement in this area? What is your overall feel for how these policies are being implemented and received? And especially now that there is a concern over Omicron variant. Josh, I'll go with you first. Oh, okay.
1: Thank you. And thanks so much for having me. It's really great to talk about this topic. So I was one of the members of the writing group for the SHEA guidance for the COVID vaccine as condition of employment. And together, Dr. Murthy and I co-led writing of the implementation guide for the COE process. So what's my overall feel? I think that it's it's appropriate that these policies are being implemented. And I think overall, they are being well received. I think that you know there are a number of questions that are important for institutions to ask. I don't know how well they're being asked on an individual basis, but I imagine that there are a lot of questions that we'll get into. One thing that I do want to say is in terms of how does this relate to the Omicron variant, I think that Omicron is just a reminder of why we recommended this condition of employment in the first place. At the time that we were writing the recommendations, Delta was on the rise. Now it's Omicron. There'll be another Greek letter that we may be talking about down the road. The key here is that the path to controlling the COVID 19 pandemic includes vaccination of as many people as possible. And so, as healthcare workers and as healthcare professionals, we should be leading the way. Thank you. Reika,
0: what are your thoughts?
2: Well, I think this is fundamentally gets down to you know, why, what we do in healthcare. And I think Dr. Shashin mentioned the importance of um, uh, the Omicron variant as a reminder. And really, we've had during this pandemic, multiple reminders of why it's been so important to protect our healthcare workers who are at the front lines. And I I do think we, as healthcare epidemiologists, have a long history of having been at the forefront and trying to advocate for safety of our patients, of our healthcare workers and our visitors and our community. And I think we have a lot of lessons learned from past experiences, such as the influenza pandemic uh, more recently than the H1N1 uh, pandemic and, and our efforts collectively across the country in in introducing really the concept of having a vaccinated healthcare workforce against influenza. I think those are really important historical perspectives now as we're thrust into this pandemic and how we've experienced it. And I absolutely agree that there's always going to be another crisis like this, but at any time, if there's no time, there's really no time like now during this particular pandemic that we need to continue to come back to the core of why do we do what we do and how can we best serve our community. So I think the role of mandates from my perspective has become very critical, particularly in the healthcare sector. We've all experienced both from the SARS epidemic twenty years ago, the really the tragedy around some healthcare professionals at the front line who were uh, affected not only infected but, but had uh, fatal outcomes. So I think we it's we owe it to ourselves to remember those heroes and realize what all of our frontline workers have gone through during this This pandemic as well. It's here to stay for some time, and I think we've seen evidence of uptake of more boosters, for example, by the community as news of the Omicron variant has emerged. So it's just another reminder we need to lead from that perspective of what we think are the the best science and best way to protect everybody, and hope that you know that it'll sort of ultimately will be judged, I guess, by history at some point. But the success of our efforts just going to, depending on how well we protect our, our caregivers. Probably a long-winded answer. We can certainly cut it down.
0: Oh, that was actually perfect. Josh and Rick, I, I totally agree with what you were saying. And I was just reflecting back when you were speaking about the experiences as to what last two years have really been. And then when the vaccines came and so on and so forth, this uh, event this pandemic has never been seen before, at least in the modern timeframe. We compare it to uh, influenza pandemic of 1918. I'm not sure if it's a comparison, fair comparison. This is far more different, far more aggressive enemy uh, that we are dealing with. And we, I think when we came together for the condition of employment conversation, it was really geared towards time of action is now, and we need to put in some support together for institutions. A lot of institutions at that time were considered. This but had no support out there, so we wanted to put the support out there for them as well. And and then the implementation guidance that you guys pr- provided had been really good pathway of implementing how to how to get it done. So I've been actually amazed, and as you said, like this is not the last variant we are dealing with, and uh, we will probably continue to do that. And the reason of implementation guidance really is to help people get vaccinated and help others get vaccinated. So you both have been involved in Shea's work group around mandatory vaccine policies. And can you provide our listeners some insight into what you have done and what you have learned from this group? And Dr. Muthi, can you start us on some conversation?
2: Sure, I'd glad to start. So I think this experience with being involved through Shea with these uh, working groups, around with vaccine and others, is really a, a fantastic experience for those who've not had the opportunity to do so. I'd highly encourage you to be involved. But it, essentially, it, the, the, working, the, the, fund, the concepts of the working group are to bring together a group of individuals. And in this case, it was a fairly large group. I want to say it was over 20 people who represented expertise Not only through Shea in terms of healthcare epidemiologists, infectious disease physicians, uh, infection professional, prevention professionals, but also others who other stakeholders, including those with regulatory experience, those with legal expertise, who can really bring together all the different facets of the conversation. And so the, the group essentially was, was an opportunity to bring together this group and work through the, the overarching goal. And one of the key questions was, what was this group going to end up deciding? And so really coming into this with a sense that we don't know what what the conclusion will be. The intent is to actually review all the information available And and really keep an open mind whether or not we might have biases coming into the conversation. And that's, I think that's what being involved with a group like this really allows you to do. And I would just add that, so so in terms of the actual working group, we kind of met several times, talked through some of the issues, broke down the topic into multiple subjects and kind of developed subgroups that would then go off and research the literature as well as really have conversations to bring back to the larger group for discussion around the specific questions we wanted to tackle. And at the end of the, the close to the end, once all the information was compiled, we would put the discussion to a vote. Individual recommendations would be voted upon. Uh, and that's, I think, the Intent of the whole process, through what was really uh, described through our Shea Handbook for developing these kinds of expert guidances, really is to understand that they may not be a grade level evidence out there, and in this case, certainly wasn't because we're dealing with new information. But there is a process that is that is established for us to follow that allows us to have an have some structure and be respectful of you know what's published, be respectful of the expertise but really come together as a group and come out with the best recommendations. I'll just add that I, from my perspective, they have a long history of advocacy when, for, when it comes to the safety of the public and our healthcare you know, industry, workers and professionals. So I think you know, we're all advocates for in the same mission, having a safer, healthier future for all. And I think that's a good reminder for why being involved with these kinds of efforts to is really critical and a, a huge learning opportunity because you're actually influencing policy with really that that sense in mind, using the expertise but delivering and uh, recommendations that can really support our mission of all of our members in uh, hospitals and healthcare facilities. So I think that's kind of just another perspective. I think it's really worthwhile to keep in mind and uh, learning from this kind of experience is tremendous about the different facets and perspectives that people bring, but all with the same goal of coming out with the best recommendation for our society. And in this case, getting endorsement from multiple other stakeholders, other societies as well.
1: Yeah, so I don't know that I could say it much better, but I will add a couple of things. One is, I totally agree that the multidisciplinary approach was amazing. The perspectives that were brought to the table from employee health, occupational health, from legal and and other aspects really opened our eyes. Shea is about, and healthcare epidemiology is often about, we know what the evidence is, we know what we can do, now what do we do next? how do we act on this? And I think that, Walid, you said it perfectly, that the agreement, the basically consensus was time for action is now. And I think we really came together and, and were able to answer that question together. The enthusiasm was amazing. The leadership from David Weber was just absolutely fantastic. He kept us moving and he had us all voting. And Valerie Deloney keeps us in line, which is absolutely <laughs> essential. But it was, you know, a matter of people, people did their homework, people came in and we had great discussions. And I think it, it was emblematic both of how there was an urgency to get this done, but also that we all really understood that we had to, we had to figure this out together. And so we did so. And I was really pleased to learn so much from my colleagues and to, and to meet so many people that I'd never interacted with before.
2: I think it's also good to just remind now a recollection. It seems like it was so long ago, but I think you right. had almost like an eight to 10 week time. Span, oh yeah.
1: It was lightning speed. Did
2: this. So I think Josh, to your point, it was a very rapid, you know, effort with a, a, sen- a, a really, a, as you pointed out, a sense of urgency to act that, you know, we, and so everybody was very passionate and yet very committed to delivering, you know, the, the call to action, whatever that was, and, and absolutely agree, every individual. And I wanted to add besides occupational health, employee health, human resources experts, as well as the legal and regulatory, really passionate group of people and all very, very committed. So thank you for, for mentioning that the time frame was was very compressed unlike most writing documents
1: right it usually takes us at least 18 months if not longer to put together an expert guidance yeah and that's that is just simply impressive about how we put together a document that is useful and has some really helpful content in it in such a quick time it was it was very exciting
2: and just to add, in that compressed time period, things were changing. Yeah. As we, uh,
1: as we went. Through. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, and we should we should just know one more thing is that in our vote, the initial vote was not unanimous, right? So this was a wonderful example of a very healthy discussion and debate, a respectful listening and reflecting back on people's opinions, and and we truly did come to a consensus in the end. I mean, and then we all sang "Kumbaya."
0: Next question. Yeah. No, I, I think just reflecting back on the same that even though it was lightning speed, I, I do remember a lot of conversation. Josh, uh, yourself, Eureka, like it wasn't take this this year to support a mandatory vaccination policy was not taken lightly, and uh, like there was a lot of debate and 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 lot lot of voting uh, and and review of literature on each and every point. And so you both work in different areas in, in infection prevention. Dr Murthy you work in adult systems while Dr Shabzan is pediatrics can you both talk about differences on implementing vaccine policies in your specific areas I'll, uh, Dr Shabzan I'll I'll start with you this time
1: Yeah. So a couple of things about the pediatric context. The first is that we have an extra layer of need of protection. Until recently, nobody under the age of 12 could be vaccinated. So there was a sense that we had to create as much of a cocoon, as much of a protective layer for all of our patients as we could. It still exists because under five, which is a good chunk of our patients, a good proportion of our patients, and infants with COVID can become severely ill, it's, it's that much more important for us to continue not only to advocate, but also to make sure that we're providing maximal protection. I think a similarity would be that the majority of the transmission that we were seeing and the majority of the risk was because of our employees interacting with each other, which they're going to do. From a pediatric point of view, there really was not a huge amount of risk from patient exposure. The first few waves, we did not, not all of us, I mean, there were different areas, but it wasn't as, it wasn't the same as adult disease. Delta, we saw more pediatric disease, but still the the biggest risk was having lunch with somebody unmasked. And so I think that it was very similar in terms of ensuring coverage as broadly as we can, because people come to work to interact with one another. They've been going through a very long period where they haven't been able to do that and they miss it. And we're trying desperately to, to meet the need for social interaction and Honestly, for productive employment with safety,
0: and this is one of the avenues forward. That's such a great insight, Dr. Murthy. Uh, your thoughts?
2: Yeah, I I think from the standpoint of healthcare organizations, while pediatrics, Josh outlined, kind of has some additional layers that might be needed because of the apps, lack of vaccine access until recently. Really on the adult, if you think about the any general hospital, any large hospital, uh, or even community hospitals, it's a mixed bag. Even if you don't have a dedicated pediatric service or hospital, we have a mixed population Even in our hospital, for example, it might be pediatrics wards, and yet many of the staff are are from other parts of the hospital. So I think that in reality, there's probably more similarities than differences from the standpoint of implementing uh, policies. But I agree from the patient perspective, certainly that that was a a concern. But in our healthcare institutions, we have such high-risk patients. You know, we, we have a, a matrix model where often our units are, you know, all come, have all comers in the, in these units with different levels of risk, whether it's transplant patients or in our ICUs or, or wards. So I think the overarching concern is to establish kind of that organizational stance and really get to everybody with a consistent message. And uh, I do think there are probably a lot of similarities now, of course, as we have more access to vaccines. I think that, that levels the playing field somewhat. Now, but I do agree with Josh's point that most of our focus has been on illness among healthcare workers, not only from interaction between themselves, but also the fact that they're members of our community. So they are at risk from being exposed in the community. And if they, if they come into our health healthcare settings and are incubating illness and are pre-symptomatic, they're posing a risk to our patients. So that's, I think, probably a consistent risk across the board.
0: Thank you. Thank you for that insight. It's very helpful to kind of understand how the different systems are approaching this complex issue. So do we have any information around how organizations have implemented processes for exemptions, such as religious or medical, and how those are being viewed for approval or denial?
2: Well, you know, these are complex issues. And I, I think one of the things that was we really talked about during the writing group and in the implementation group was how important it was to have an organizational approach that was credible and you know reliable and consistent you need to have the buy in of the people who are uh, one to know that there's a process to request exemptions but more importantly to know that the organization has a process that can be applied you know to everybody in the same way and it's fair but importantly it's it's credible and consistent. So I think they all require, at least in our organization, uh, historically, even with influenza vaccine, we've had influenza vaccine mandates for uh, almost eight years now. And so during that process, we established a close collaboration between our occupational health and HR and legal teams, along with our clinicians and epi professionals to really have a planning group that, that's the panel through which these exemption requests all go through and they are logged and follow-up is, is insured. And we have to make sure that we weigh weigh that, that these experts are legal and HR experts are the ones who are responsible for ensuring compliance with uh, state and federal laws. And so we rely on them. So in our organization, we have, for example, this panel, often the medical exemptions are routed through a clinician panel, whether it's employee health, our epidemiologists, our chief of staff, our occupational health physician so that it is a transparent process shown to be supported by the medical staff quality oversight process as well as through administration and our you know religious exemptions uh, often are, are sort of directly routed to our HR and legal group who reviews them for um, for their Compliance and and follows through. So I think it's a kind of a well-established process now. The toolkit, that that implementation toolkit that we worked on through that has templates for these exemption requests, and so there's several examples of these toolkits. But most organizations have set up some kind of a committee or a panel for review. And I think one of the key key things beyond the the credibility is to make sure that there's some flexibility to understand that individual, if people are looking at the individual, not necessarily just the piece of um, paper, but they understand if there's a somebody who is undergoing a, a specific issue in their life and they want to defer it for some time. I think that kind of individual human level understanding and empathy and compassion has to be part of the equation as you're trying to establish a, uh, you know a policy that the organization stands behind with the goal of vaccination for everybody. Those are my thoughts,
1: Josh. Yeah, I totally agree. I think, I imagine that most places have a committee because I think sometimes what we focus on is the people who decide not to adhere to a rule or follow a mandate and will look for ways to get out of it. And there will always be people who do that, but the vast majority of people are sincere, mean well, and want to do the right thing. And if their religion, if a medical condition dictates that there's risk to them to take this vaccine, and that risk is not tolerable to them, it's very important to try to understand where they're coming from. There's going to be different levels of health literacy. There's going to be different levels of access. There's going to be different Perceptions that may not be clear to all of us just because of our upbringing and our background, but extremely important to listen to individuals and to understand what they're saying and then to try to put it in context and the best way to make a good decision is to do so as a group. We all know what our individual institutions have done. And I think one thing that's been very interesting is you can look at the evolution of knowledge and the evolution of how people approach this requirement by looking at what people are granting as exemptions. Pregnancy is a perfect example. Or infertility, do you choose infertility? Early on, there were some folks, and, and we've been so fortunate that Rick is saying, we have examples in the implementation kit. People have been very generous to share their internal documents so that we could have insight into it. But you know, the discussion was, while we recommend strongly for pregnant women to get vaccinated, That's there's no question to that. What is the risk to the fetus is a question, as far as we know, it's low. And as far as we know, if we risk benefit in the presence of a pandemic, it favors vaccination. Both of those are true statements. But for the woman who is four months pregnant, who has had miscarriages or not, there's a reality that we have to try to address. And so I I really appreciate that many of us have tried to meet our people halfway. What we did at my institution was we granted an exemption through the pregnancy. So it ends on the day of delivery and they need to be completed their series by the time they come back from their maternity leave. So it's, it's acknowledging the concern and the stress, not creating more stress, but at the same time saying, we're all in this together. Were you not pregnant, you would be getting
2: vaccinated. I was just going to add that, you know, just to, to sort of bookend Josh's comments that implied under all of this is that this process for exemption is to, to have a process for people to work through their objections of whether they meet the valid medical exemptions or conscientious objections or others. And that's often where where there's a lot of time and effort needed, but at the end of the day, if the organization has to stand behind those decisions, and if somebody doesn't, the implications are that the exemption is not granted. There's a choice for the individual to either proceed to get the vaccination or face, you know, leaving the organization. And and I think that's ultimately why this process is so important. It is a major, major decision point.
0: But I was gonna just add to what uh, Josh was saying, and it really resonates with me as well as to uh, and what you had said that like it's not like we we are making decisions in silos. It's it, uh, and we shouldn't. It's a committee. It's a group of individuals. But the healthcare workers, the people we work with on a daily basis, they have been with us, to, uh, and we have to bring them along. And really, for example. As uh, Josh was mentioning about the pregnant women, it can be it can be very difficult decision for a pregnant woman to make at that time. It might be absolutely crystal clear to me that the need to outweighs the risk, which it is. But uh, I totally uh, we all need to consider the worries and concerns from others and weigh in. So I think that's where a committee structure is helpful. But uh, because a decision like this is not easy to make for somebody else's livelihood, and it should not be that the ID doc who's running IP is making all these decisions, it should not be that. It should really be a bigger committee with experts, with the HR experts, as you said, Reka, and uh, legal guidance and all that, so that decisions that are made are really, really made with uh, a lot of conscious celebration with that. So thank you. Thank you for for those insights, both of you. Now, uh, uh, how about religious exemptions? And I know a lot of ID docs are not directly involved in the religious exemption. Uh, even in our system as well, we are not directly involved. But any, any thoughts on that, uh, Josh?
1: Yes, unfortunately. I mean, I am involved. So, but I serve as the medical subject matter expert. So if a claim is made about a vaccine, I'm there to say, here's the content. Oftentimes for influenza, it was objecting to the components of the vaccine. And so I was able to clarify that question. I think that what we, I can just speak to our experience. What we try to do is we try to look for a sincere belief. Faith is by nature, faith it's it's a leap it's not you can't argue it and you can't argue it with science but people can express why they're feeling what they feel and show their sincerity through having a, a conversation so oftentimes they will submit a form and then we'll have them resubmit we may give clarifying questions we may challenge them on certain claims we don't try to win an argument and eliminate but we also don't try to give carte blanche to people who will just claim my religion it's against my religion and i think that You know, you take the COVID vaccine and you take the question of the use of aborted fetal cells. And I think that it's it's another perfect example of how, for me, there's no issue because the use of stem cells in research has saved more lives than I can count. And so I support it completely. And this event happened years and years ago, and our rules are different now and blah, 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 blah. But I know that it's real for some people. And so, you know, again, we try to have that recognition and that understanding. It's less about the legality and more about the sincerity and about meeting people where they are. We had people who applied for exemption from flu and said, because I don't want anything that uses fetal cells. And we wrote back and said, good news, no fetal cells and flu vaccine. So you can have a flu vaccine. COVID-19, different story, right? Just trying to balance as much as possible. now. I just want to say one, one thing that maybe more the next question, but there's a temptation for those of us who are in favor and those of us who honestly are responsible for going through these requests. They're very emotional. They're very challenging. It can be a very draining process. And I imagine it's the same for the people who apply. But there's a tendency to either say, no, I'm going to make it so that you have to get vaccinated. Or if I give you an exemption, I'm going to make the barriers so high, I'm going to put extra burden on you to make your life miserable so that you instead choose to get vaccinated. And I, I don't think that anybody says that consciously, but I worry that that's where it goes and, and what I try to remind myself is, <clears throat> so I don't think of the person who is coming up with a way to pretend that they have a religion that says they can't get this vaccine and they, they find the right words to use to get through. I think about the person who has a history of myocarditis and almost died of myocarditis and their cardiologist says, I don't think you should risk it, right? That person, I don't want to give a vaccine to. We had an employee who had some sort of TIA or, or something. I couldn't tell you what, it's not a common reaction. But darn if I'm gonna have that person take a second vaccine let's not let's not risk. remember that we're here to try to help people and make people healthy. So I, I think that that's one piece that especially around the religious exemptions because you know nobody will ever agree on religion. and so it's it's I don't agree with your belief. I think it's extremely important for us to understand that. All we have to do is we have to understand the sincerity and then we have to tell these individuals that given this, I respect that, but given this, I need you to do everything you possibly can to prevent transmission. And we did that before we had vaccines. So that's really what we do for people. We don't have to create extra walls, extra barriers, extra hoops. We just have to tell them, yeah, now you really do need to wear a mask. Now you really do need to wash your hands, et cetera.
2: I think the important themes there, just and I completely agree, are really understanding that you know, sincerity or conviction, is that there are nuances to these, to the, the sense of a personal belief that whether it's rooted in you know a faith or uh, or other. But I think that, as Josh's point, it's so important to carve out the pieces that are are in between that may not be clear cut medical contraindications, that have this historical context of experience of an individual that we will never, we don't have all the answers, even from a scientific perspective of what some of these reactions have made been. So in those settings, we would often ask the person to provide documentation of those reactions, just so we kind of have them in our, again, just to have them. As part of our process so that it just demonstrates the due diligence and kind of was able to withstand, you know, scrutiny later to say, did you follow a process that had some consistency and credibility? But I think we can't compromise that approach of really listening to the individual. And uh, yeah, some of those fears are real and we don't have the answers there.
0: And I think I think what both of you have said I I think the medical exemption is a very difficult process and religious in itself uh, by definition is extremely complicated there are a lot more things that come in play and 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 we have to be sensitive to everybody's strongly held beliefs and also it's a it's a lot more complicated situation that takes me to my next question and I think Josh has kind of alluded to it so I'll start with dr moody first what are some of the biggest challenges Around implementing mandatory vaccine policies, that that you encountered,
2: I think in the past when it came to like influenza vaccine, it I will share that in our organization it took a few years to. Be able to work through the key elements of aligning the stakeholders, really communicating the why, getting people to understand the message and the process that we were open to really demonstrating that, you know, respect and inclusion and some confidence and the real life experiences. There wasn't a pandemic then. This was after the H1N1 cumulative years of vaccine shortages. We're in a different place now. So I think in terms of this COVID-19, that mandatory vaccine policy, it is, it is largely around, you know, a lot of concerns around the rapid development of vaccines. And in addition to the prior historical kind of vaccine hesitancy across the board. And I think that this, this experience this year certainly highlighted the importance of tackling that, that public, publicly. And how do you get to communicating and closing those knowledge gaps from all sectors, including generational, historical gaps, disparities, the trust p- trust and perception gaps among sectors of our population, including our healthcare workforce? So I think those are those are some examples. Um, and then I'll add another one. That is, you know, there are real concerns about shortages of labor in healthcare. For in other countries, for example, have not even tackled this because they are concerned about, you know, visiting some folks in, in England, they're very concerned about the drain of their workforce to other countries on the continent. And so legitimate concerns from the healthcare workforce that were faced here as well is another challenge. So those stakeholders include administrators and leadership of the organization to, to kind of really be on board. So I think those are some examples, I'm sure, Josh can add others, but... Um, Clearly
1: important. Yeah. Yeah. I, I will agree with all of those. Probably the main one that I'll address is is or or add is that we talk a lot about vaccine hesitancy, but we don't have a good method to address it straight on. And it's not a problem that can be fixed quickly. So we don't have an answer. We, We have methods and we have ideas, but we don't really know how to counter it. And misinformation is very, very challenging. Not just from a sinister point of view, not really. It's just that people believe one another when they talk. And so people say, well, I heard. And that tends to be more convincing than I saw a published paper that said or that makes sense, that doesn't make sense. So I think that one of the biggest challenges is that we've never really taken on vaccine hesitancy straight on. We've talked about how to get around it. We've talked about anti-vaxxers. We've tried to frame things. And I think there's a ton of material that people have produced and a lot of people who are trying to address this. And and I think there's wonderful work out there. But what strikes me is that as a country, as an institution, the first move was to mandate and then explain why rather than to go forward and say, we're thinking about mandating. I want to hear from you and then address those issues straight on. And it's hard to do because you're not sure where you'll end up. But I I really think that that will continue to be our challenge moving forward because we're going to end up answering and justifying rather than starting from a place of we all need to be safe. Not everybody's going to agree how we stay safe right? Exactly. Or the decisions that are made, but we're in this together. And so we need to make sure that we're aligning on this and let's talk about this. So honestly, I think it's better because I think those conversations inevitably happen. But I think that as we said, this is not the last that we're seeing of this type of challenge and societal challenge. And I think our one of our biggest challenges is going to be to have these straightforward, honest conversations to come to a consensus of what we think is the best way forward.
0: That's well said, Josh. I think you used this phrase in one of the meetings that we are building the plane as we are flying. And I, it has stuck with me ever since. Uh, and that's where it is, right? We are all experts and we we knew about how to tackle a lot of outbreaks. But the issues that we are facing in this pandemic are not what, what were in the books, <laughs> what we knew, what we what was in the history about this, the societal challenges, the issues, the social media impact and all other things. It's really not one thing. It's And it doesn't seem right for us to judge others and their decisions. But at some point, like when you were saying all that, I thought I was thinking to myself, why did I get vaccinated? Because I felt like I had no choice, not because I wasn't given any choice. I got vaccinated as soon as I qualified because to me, this was the only way forward. This was literally the only way forward. But others are not there. They are not epidemiologists. And I think part of our job is to understand and bring them to that point and try to actually support them in that journey. I'll
1: just, can I just add one thing to that, Well, I think very, very well said. What Before the vaccines came out, I was not, I hadn't decided what I was going to do, because I wanted to see the data, mm-hmm. right? I, I wanted to see the data. And, and I, I wish I could share this with more people, but I was so inspired and astounded by the safety data, by the efficacy data. Like, wow. You know, that's like when HCV treatments came out and they were getting 99, hundred percent. I was like, oh, come on. Like, it's real. It's legit. And I was talking to a guy that I work with here, we, we did a lot of the COVID trials here in Cincinnati Children's for adults as well as kids. And I, I called him and I said, are these numbers real? And he said, you bet. And the two of us were tearing up. It was just so exciting. So absolutely. I knew that I would have to make an important decision. And when that data came out, it was a no-brainer, right? And so then I was totally surprised with all this pushback. Like, well, you don't, this is, wow. Like, this is one of the best vaccines I've ever seen, you know? So anyway, I agree. Not everybody is there. Not everybody understands it the way that we understand it. And we just have to help them towards it.
2: I think echoing both of your comments around the experience last December when the data was available. I remember when the day it was available, there was this collective cheer and this real, I mean, I just felt emotionally a sense of this incredible inspiration, pride, and excitement that maybe we were going to turn the corner finally in this horrible year that we all had. Having said that, I think, you know, one of you mentioned social media. You know, for years, I'm sure we've all been giving talks to our boards and our uh, members of the community and our healthcare workers about vaccination, the history of vaccinations. People have forgotten. This generation, you know, uh, know, a couple of generations have had no experience with vaccine-preventable diseases, having evolved as they have. And so, add to that, the evolution of the internet, social media, where basically a single voice on a blog can be set at the same stage as a researcher who's knowledgeable about that data that you just described. And so it's, yeah, it's it's really become a compartmentalized public where people can kind of have a voice and amplify. You know, with in, you know terms like influencers, uh, where we, they can have a big voice, even though even though they may not have the the data, they're expert they're put on the same playing field as experts. So it's not it's not equal, and we have that to deal with in addition to the inherent concerns about vaccines mm-hmm. that then play into the vaccine hesitancy and amplify it. And we haven't even talked about politics, but.
0: It's also there. Yeah, I I remember one of the news outlets asked me about some uh, some questions about what I thought about some of the political policies. And my answer to them was simple that this is pandemic. This is not politics. Right. So I'm not going to answer those questions. But you're right. Like there's so many other factors that we we need to kind of contract uh, and, and kind of move forward on. I think, uh, Rekha and Josh, you both have alluded to really important hesitancy issues, and I think part of our job is, and and I keep on thinking to myself about this, is we have been in this profession for a long time. But others who are just hearing about pandemic, they're learning by fire right now about pandemic and management and epidemiology and all these things. So I think uh, there's a lot of responsibility, probably a lot more fear, as Josh said, like the data when it came. And you uh, you also said the same thing, that we, it was an emotional moment for all of us. But I think it was limited by the fact that very few people understood exactly what this meant. This was, this is still now i i don't even know of any other vaccine that's the safe like there's no nothing like that i think there's billions not millions billions of people who are vaccinated and there's there's the data is like Amazing, but again, there's a, there's a lot that we we need to do to kind of get people understand this. So, what about solution to these problems? What have you uh, your institutions been doing to alleviate the concerns and challenges that arise, Doctor? Yeah, Schaffer? so I
1: think that the first thing that we always go to is education. Education doesn't stick, but we are well educated people and. If we have never, I'd never learned that. I never heard that. Nobody ever told me I didn't read that. It's very hard for people to accept. So I think that we've put out as much information as we can. Our former uh, CEO, there used to be a once a month meeting for managers. He turned that into a leadership rounds that was broadcast online and anybody in the institution could log in and anybody in the institution could send a question directly to him or one of the leadership group. And the topic for many, many months for most of the call was COVID. What are we doing about COVID? How are we doing about COVID? And it was answered in real time. And I think that that is a way to engage directly with people to meet people where they are, you know, having informational town halls. We also have social media platform in our institution. It's a Microsoft platform called Yammer, and we've used it for ideas and we've used it for uh, letting people know when there's going to be a truck at a campus or something like that. And so this inevitably was used for people voicing opinions. And, you know, the majority of it was actually really helpful and respectful that people could understand one another. There was some moderating done. And so we did have to help people be productive in their conversations. But I I do think that people were able to share experiences and people were able to, to see the different pieces and not just throw sound bites at each other. And my hope is that that really helped create a sense of community and a sense of, we don't all have to agree. but we all understand this is a requirement dr
0: murthy
2: yeah I, and I, I think you know education is, is never enough education I and mean, say you know we we are we are ourselves are continually learning, but I think the key message is to get information out to as many people as possible, as frequently as possible, and continue to update them. I think I will I will say that one of the biggest challenges for folks was this sense of everything was changing, policies were changing, new guidance was appearing. So there was never enough information being sent. There was no such thing as too much information or too frequent. So in addition to the the town halls and the leadership meetings. Uh, in our organization, there were daily organization huddles, similarly, and uh, at every level, orga- you know, organization-wide leadership huddle, there was all staff huddle. There were open forums that that were that were really intended to kind of not only answer questions but get some basic information out with key changes. But so partnering with that, you, that's never going to be enough, right? Not everybody can log on all the time, and and it's great to, to be able to log in and check, but even that. People were pretty stressed. So uh, other things that are that in our place we did was written communication. We mobilized our marketing team, kind of retooled all of their efforts toward communication in the written form, whether it's online, group, all all blast emails to medical staff will be one and then to all staff would be the other. And often with similar information, because you have to know your audience, you have to make sure that people are receiving the information. It would be in a form that was easy to read that could then be posted and printed for people who don't have access to the internet. So not forgetting people who really are no, don't have the ability to log on, uh, that's other than for those other forms like daily huddles to make sure they get the information internet site being updated you know regularly with with all the new materials I will say that probably the one of the most stressful elements for staff certainly from uh, all levels was the rapidity of change and kind of trying to overcome that anxiety that they many felt about well we're doing this now but in an hour later it's going to change and tomorrow it's going to change and how do you steer that ship is it the, you know, and, and so understanding the agility of an organization depends on that kind of rapid communication and uh, implementation of changes. I think the other element is is really making sure when you incorporate these messaging to in, introduce not only the science and the policy, but also some assurance. Some wellness, and so in all of the the communications that went out, there were always some something around wellness techniques and and self care because I think uh, you know having that front and center to acknowledge what people were going through was an important element in in addition to providing support you know spiritual support and others. Those are some examples. I know many people have many other examples, and I'm sure we do have others as well. But there's just no. I don't think there's anything we can say that um, there's too much of communication or finding channels to touch and connect at a human level, as well as, you know, in blast communications of all kinds. Walking rounds, leadership rounds. I mean, we all went around, no matter where we're sitting in meetings, back to back, in between, going out there on the floors if you're not directly taking care of people. Patients to to make sure to touch base with folks being visible. I think is another one from from our standpoint too. People view infection prevention, you know, folks as as being resources and and very much part of the team in our, in our organization and in all of our organizations. So those are some examples.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think those are those are really important important elements. Having a as uh, as Josh said earlier, having this platform where you can openly discuss issues kind of gives an outlet and also provides a little bit of guidance. And I think every institution probably did something similar. Uh, and uh, Rekha, as you were saying, like ha- having this rapidly evolving situation kind of causes this chaos that all uh, everyone can, that we as epidemiologists have to manage and provide people a little bit more stable hands, stable life. So I, I think, I think what we, we did, I and I remember from from, uh, from the experience was uh, we actually made a single source of truth, a centralized internet site where all the policies for COVID, everything is in one place, including for vaccination, including for travel, including for everything else, uh, mandatory or whatnot. So everything is in one place. So it kind of really facilitates that into one place, especially with the implementation of the mandatory vaccination processes. It has been very, very helpful. And the other thing really is to reaching out to people with different town halls and open conversations, both at individual levels. I think I've met a lot of people, and you, all of you guys have, have probably done uh, so at, at like one-to-one uh, in a small group, bigger groups, and the entire institution, different level of uh, conversations have been very helpful. I'm going to actually...
2: Yeah, I add one other thing? We'll yes. I think another fun, uh, underpinning element of getting to the concern and, and the question, the concerns and challenges in organizations, As much as there was all this rapidity and and, navigating the unknown, one of the things I think is important from a leadership perspective is that as much as possible, you should try and and align everything with existing existing kind of models. So you're not creating new governance structures, for example. There is some comfort for people to know that even if you're doing things really quickly, that you're doing things according to the established governance structure. So whether it's infection prevention committee gets morphed into a, you know, executive group, but it has all the key people and the board gets to hear about the decisions. And I just say that because we don't necessarily think about that when we're in the moment trying to make decisions. You do what you need to do. We all design our systems to respond for emergencies, but to make sure that there is that backdrop so that at the end of the day, whether it's a physician on the medical staff who you know, rarely comes here and is trying to figure out how to deal with something, or a staff member in a nursing division who wants to know that this was actually supported at all levels. That there is some assurance to that. That we, even if it's after the fact, to make sure to circle back and say this was vetted, this was approved, we followed all the existing protocols, we did what we needed to do in the moment. And so that, in terms of the rapidity of stuff, is just another piece. I think it's probably it's common to everybody. It's worth remembering.
0: Uh, so such, such important conversation. I'm going to skip question eight. We'll jump to question nine, because it's, it's probably going to be more, it's going to be pretty big podcast and we want to be, as a wrap up, I would like to see if you, either of you have any clause, uh, closing thoughts, Dr. Shefson. Chef, yeah, so, so many things, so
1: little time. So I'll, I'll, I'll share what I, what I wrote down. Which is to properly implement and sustain, we need to better understand where people are and how they perceive the need for vaccine and about mandating, right? That would be ideal. But unfortunately, we do not have the convenience of time to do so. We we just don't. We're in the middle of a pandemic. We have to stop this pandemic. And so we've implemented the mandates. Now, there's still a lot we can learn about hesitancy, acceptance, religious beliefs that'll serve us well, both during this time, as well as as we move forward. So even though we've decided to mandate and we've implemented, it's not over. It's far from over. And going back to where we started, which is supporting the health of our staff, of our patients, of our caregivers, of our families, of ourselves, all of these things still relate back to continual learning and continual evolving around this this need to stop this pandemic. Dr. Muthi?
2: Yes. Uh, so I think Jeff said it so well. I guess what I would just close with in, in my thoughts are, you know, as we're thinking about vaccine mandates, we've had versions of vaccine mandates in different sectors, schools, in healthcare, and and other sectors. And they're no doubt a powerful tool for safeguarding public health. And when chosen carefully, they can save lives. And that's been shown and published um, with influenza vaccine mandates in healthcare. It's been shown with measles. And so There's that historical piece. At the same time, I think ultimately the success of any of these mandates in in doing what our intention is, not only to achieve and sustain vaccine rates, but also to have that credibility that it was the right decision depends on how they're implemented. And I think this is where leadership really matters. And to to do this in a way that ensures respect and inclusion in the decision making process in the organization, as well as making sure that there are consistent and thoughtfully developed policies that can be seen by the the individuals that affect that are affected as credible and consistent in their application. We've talked through some of those. So I, I you know I I think those are all important concepts that, you know, we'll be staying with for some time. And I don't think this is, this pandemic is certainly not over. And that the concept of these mandates may be extended further, you know, are the boosters, how that will develop. So I don't think the story is over, but I think what we have learned so far is going to be critical for us to incorporate as we go forward.
0: Wow. This is, this is fantastic. I really, really appreciate this great conversation. I learned a lot And I hope our our listeners will also enjoy the conversation. And hopefully this will be helpful to give everybody perspectives on experiences from from both of you guys. I I really want to thank you again for sharing your perspectives and experiences. This podcast can be accessed on Shea's online education center, Learning CE, under the Rapid Response Program, where you will also find resources such as Shea COVID-19 Town Halls If you're interested in becoming Shea member, take $20 off membership using the coupon code learningce22 at the checkout. This concludes today's episode of Rapid Response Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in.